Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink live on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host Joe Campanelli beverage director in New York City at Del Anima, Lartuzzi, La Picho, and Amphora Restaurants. And I'm here with my really good friend, Matt Conway. Uh, Matt is the GM and beverage director at Mark Forgione Restaurant, a restaurant down in Tribeca that I absolutely love. We have Michelin star every year, all sorts of awards. I don't know. I can't even begin to, to list all of the, uh, the accomplishments. You guys would definitely uh, fall asleep because this is a, a very accomplished restaurant for something that is just only four years old. Um, and I think that just speaks to, to how great Matt is at his job, how great Mark Forgione is as, as a chef, really a, a legendary chef in, in America at this time, and just uh, also quite a young guy. So I'm super excited to have, to have Matt on the show. So great to have you. Thank you, Joe. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, about what it was like um, when you guys opened up the restaurant back, back in 08 and when you were putting the, uh, the initial list together and um, how you went about that. Well, that was a long time ago, <clears throat> but um, we opened in uh, summer of 2008, which was seemed like a good time to be opening a restaurant, um, but that quickly the wheels fell off if you if you remember the economic state back then but the goal for the wine list was <clears throat> just the same goal as um Mark's food which is seasonal always changing um ready to go so i scaled down what i did previously you know with 300 plus selections to you know around 100 but rather than just changing my wines by the glass i wanted to change the bulk of the menu with every season with his food, which is what we still do today. So along with 15 wines by the glass that are constantly changing, we're changing, you know, really heavy and rosé or heavy white and rosé dominated in the warmer months and, you know, much more full bodied whites and, you know, a larger spectrum of reds go into, you know, fall and winter. What are, what are some of the logistical challenges with that? I can just see, you know, having to retrain your whole staff, having to move through inventory, how do you actually accomplish this? Um, it's a great question. Really, um, one thing I'm very fortunate to have is a staff that's been there for a very long time. Um, so, you know, we have about seven servers, three bartenders. So it's about 10, you know, people that actually, you know, touching guests in a wine capacity outside of management. Um, most of those have stayed the same for, you know, several years now. So they're in tune with what we do. They understand uh the world of wine they're passionate about it so it makes my job much easier to have people that know what we're doing um from a logistical standpoint we have a very small area to keep wine which is why we had the small list to begin with so it's much easier when you don't have all these nooks and crannies to lose stuff so it's right there in front of you um and you know i obviously like to work with a lot of things that aren't made in large production therefore you get your two cases and i usually know and i can tell you right now how many 
closure I have in my cellar right now because I get what I get, and when it's gone, it's gone. So it's I kind of have inventory in my head. Yeah, I mean that's one of the great things and challenges about working with small uh, with with smaller wineries where th- there's not a ton of it. Like I can't call up to that, that tomorrow and buy some closure because it's all sold out. And and if we had you know if we had six bottles, that's probably all that we got for the year. So it's that it's that constant training and and yeah. It, it, I think it's it's good. It keeps us as beverage directors really agile. It keeps us like you, not lazy. Yeah, when you work with small producers, you have to you have to keep tasting the new vintage. You have to keep trying to find new wines uh, because your quantity isn't consistent. It makes the job much more fun and interesting. It makes it more fun and interesting. So, how have you changed over the years? Uh, has your has your taste changed since you guys first opened? Has the clientele dictated that? Maybe when you know when you, you first opened, you, you thought they'd like a certain type of wine, and you, and you had to switch it up. Um, I don't say we switched it up. I will say that you know with the success that we've had since our opening, which you know didn't come easy. It was it was a long road to get to the point where we are where we are today. Um, different type of clientele came with that, so we have a wide range of guests that come to us for all different types of reasons you know so we have people that come with their kids because you know they see mark on television we've got people that follow the michelin guide the new york times you know all different other types of um you know just flat out foodies um we've got a lot of people in the financial sector that you know goldman people that come to us on a regular basis so there's a much more wider audience now so before when we first opened it was more focused on neighborhood because that's what we were and now that we've expanded so much i have a reserve list where I can try to, you know, sell some very <clears throat> serious wine. I didn't always have that ability. So now we have large formats. We have, you know, a reserve list or, you know, more expensive stuff. So a lot of the stuff that I get in those very small quantities that I chase because I like aren't necessarily selling themselves, but because I'm on the floor five days a week, I also have the ability to sell to those people. So the other difference is I've, you know, built that rapport with people over the years. So now I have people, you know, I put on, I don't know, remember the price, $250 bottle of Gravener, as you're probably very familiar with, and my staff is like, we're never going to be able to sell this. I have one guest that came in on Thanksgiving, had three bottles, and has now gone through the whole case. So it takes one person to to make that connection, and then those Interestingly, the Gravener is the only wine I know that's shipped in a nine-bottle case. <laughs> completely weird and random. Very true. What? Tell <clears throat> me about this idea of the reserve list. Why, why do you think that's important to have a, a separate list with some of those wines? Um, the list isn't s- completely separate. It's on the back page, um, but it's it's hidden compared to everything else. I just don't think that somebody that's coming in for a normal experience wants to have to flip through $4,400 bottles of DRC to get to what they're looking for. So I keep it really simple and concise for the people that are looking for more normal, everyday, you know, priced wines. And then for those people who don't want to flip through the $40 bottles of Stadtkrams Gruner to get to their $4,400 DRC, it makes it easy for them to say, well, sir, you know, here on the back page, I have this. And it gives me the ability to go out and find some older vintages of some, um, you know, great producers and work with things that obviously I love to, to taste and pour. So I, I don't remember the last time I had to taste a $4,400 bottle of wine when <laughs> something that's like truly special and remarkable and crazy expensive that you recently got to taste. Yeah, I can't believe I'm tasting this. Um, honestly, I'll 
we have a lot of great wines and I've tasted a lot of them recently, but I have a few guests that bring in their own stuff. So I've had some opportunity to drink some ridiculous stuff on them, um, which, you know, if, if they bring it, I, I, I wave the corkage so that I can uh, get a glass. So I have a gentleman that just recently brought in some 90 Reyes and some 89 uh, Jaboulet La Chapelle, which was some of the most stunning wines I've had since I've been in France three years ago. So we sell a lot of mostly Burgundy. You know, I get a lot of stuff from mid, late 90s Burgundy-wise. Um, and, you know, most of it's very stellar, but nothing compared to that 89 La Chapelle. So it's, it sounds like you're very amenable to if someone wants to bring in a bottle of absolutely, truly special, unique, stunning wine and share some with you. What, what if a guest wants to bring in, uh, you know, an everyday kind of wine is to bring it to, just to bring it. I had a guest uh, recently who came and sat down, asked about our corkage policy and ran across the street to Manley's wine shop and bought like a $15 bottle of like South African Cabernet or something crazy like that. I'll, char- I'll charge him the corkage <clears throat> and let him have a good time at the end of the day. I'm not here to be fussy with people. I'm here to make everybody happy. And, you know, people do all types of crazy stuff. You know, one of my first jobs in, in New York, I, my beverage director had illegally shipped in this incredible vintage of champagne straight from the domain. And it was ridiculously priced at like $4,000. And one day we had a little old lady climb up to the bar and order the bottle. And he came out and like pointed at the list in her face. And she was like, yeah, that's what I want. And she was like, I can't believe she wants this. He brings out the bottle of champagne and she tastes it and says, oh, that's great. But if I could just have that decanted, please. And he couldn't cope with the fact that she was going to decant this wine. I'm the exact opposite. I would have smiled, tasted it, decanted it for her and, and poured it as, you know, with a smile on my face. Because at the end of the day, she's the one paying for it. She can do whatever she wants for it. Right. And, you know, she was probably ahead of her time. I mean, I know a lot of sommeliers who like to decant champagne now. Uh, probably when she ordered that, you didn't see that around so much, but... Probably not. Probably not. I have a hard time with uh, people asking for ice. I'll give them the ice, but I don't want to put it. I don't want to actually put it in the glass. <laughs> I've, n- I've never administered ice to the glass. However, mm-hmm. once again, it's like ordering a steak. <laughs> you know, well done. We see it all the time. Do I like to watch a 48, 48 ounce Creekstone twenty eight day dry age ribeye cooked well done? Absolutely not. But if they're going to pay the one hundred fifty nine dollars for it. And and I think that's one of the reasons that makes the restaurant so great is that you guys definitely do exude this warmth and hospitality. And I think that even though there's so much success, there's still like there still is this really great neighborhood feel, and people there are super super warm. We struggled for a long time, so we take every guest seriously. We, you know, we used to be able to count them, you know, on one hand for an evening in, in our worst days, and the fact that we're, you know constantly busy now i you know mark nor i will ever take that for granted it's it's something that we worked hard to get to we almost never got to and now that we have it um we treat everybody like there's 10 people in the restaurant so how how did you and mark get get in touch what was your your first meeting how did you guys get together uh i actually met mark um off a craigslist ad and i was about to take another job after my time at cafe gray uh upstate actually I found the job online. I met with our managing partner in the space that you know we're in now, but it was still the former space, and it was cold. It was five years ago now, so it was right about this time, mid-January, freezing cold, no heater, and he asked me back to come meet with the chef. <clears throat> and when I walked in um, to the restaurant, I'd never met Mark. I'd heard of him 
Um, and he was sitting in the corner with his mohawk and his studded leather jacket and his fingerless gloves. And he's, you can see the breath coming out of his mouth. And I walked up and said, chef. <laughs> and he said, yeah, how are you? I said, I'm, I'm pretty good. And he said, have a seat. I sat down. And he said, so what do you want to do in life, kid? I don't remember my exact answer, but I think it was good enough to get the job. And, you know, we've never looked back. You know, we're very uh, like-minded in our different fields as far as is what we do and the passion we bring to it every day. And I think it's made a, an incredible partnership. Wow. And then tell us also a little bit about uh, even before this time, what, when did you realize that this is the career, this is what you wanted to do? I imagine you told him that you want to be... Uh, uh, one day, hopefully, sitting in a shipping container in Bushwick, talking with your buddy Joe. <laughs> that <No>. was <laughs> that was a little further along the line. Um, when I found out that I wanted to be a sommelier, yeah, exactly. Um, I'm originally from Northern California, and after moving around the country a little bit, I found myself in San Diego as an underage kid working in a restaurant business because I always have worked in the restaurant business. Um, my mother ran a restaurant my entire you know, childhood and I was a server and my boss let me sit in on a wine tasting where the, um, wine guy that had come in to teach the staff had one wine and he had, uh, everybody lined up with a piece of, of pork, a piece of a green olive and a piece of a lemon segment. And he was having everybody taste the wine, the same wine with the three different flavor profiles. And they allowed me to sit in on that, even though I wasn't of age and I was captivated by the different reaction from the three different flavor profiles ended up moving back to northern california to help my mother open her restaurant cultivated that wine list again before i was of age and then decided i wanted to move to new york to go to the american sommelier association to formally be trained and have you continued with your wine schooling since then I came here and I passed their their viticulture and vinification and then went on and passed their blind tasting. Um, I I currently don't take any courses. I certainly uh, teach at the ASA and, you know, like I said, three years ago I went to France for a three-month stage at a a famous wine restaurant, which I considered the ultimate training. Um, But currently, no, I do not take any classes. Yeah, I mean, I I find that you learn so much more by, by talking to producers, visiting regions tasting tasting here when i was seriously into wine study i felt like i didn't understand wine it, it was just memorizing facts but when you go there and you, and you see the region and you, and you smell the air and you, you talk to the people it seems like uh it, it makes a lot more sense nothing nothing can take that away it's the single most important factor of understanding you know wine period what what are some of the the your favorite wine regions that you've actually visited? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, Piedmont is obviously um, a dear to my heart and an amazing place culturally, food wise. You know, obviously you've got truffles that come out of there. The scape of the land, it's just an incredible place. Um, obviously, I think everybody's answer would be Burgundy, which I've been lucky enough to go barrel tasting in 05 and 09 so i had a couple of decent vintages to um uh luckily taste out of barrel um which was a magical experience i don't can't say i haven't been to a wine region that i didn't really thoroughly enjoy because it's it's what i enjoy so regardless of its prestige in the world or even my personal opinion you know aside from being a little bit bummed in champagne um 
why would happen in Champagne? <laughs> How could you be bummed in Champagne? It's like such a magical place yeah. in, in your mind, and then you get there. And if you've ever been to Bakersfield, California, it's like a dust bowl. I mean, I was in, I've been in the winter and in the summer, but when I was there in the winter, it was just like a big dirt pit or you know barren chalky land and everybody's talking about getting a bigger piece of the pie and there's all this corporate you know it was just not the love i have for like what we were talking about earlier you know grower family owned small production it's the exact opposite of that in many ways obviously there's a lot of that smaller champagne which i love and and support but my first trip there was just shed a tear. Like, this is not what I expected. Oh no. Um, but I still learned a lot and ultimately there's not a place I've been that I haven't, you know, had the opportunity to geek out a little bit and, and learn and taste and enjoy. And, and uh, what would be on your, on your list of places to go visit? You haven't been to. Um, see, I, I actually did some homework last night and listened to this show with uh, two buddies, Mike and uh, Richard. And I know I would say, you know, like I was just enthralled with the Northern Rhone. I I mean, I love the wines. I love the region. I love the food. I loved where I stayed. But like Mike said, you probably want to pick someplace that's a little bit more approachable for normal people. (laughs) I'm certainly not normal by any stretch when it comes to wine. Definitely not. Um, so I think you'd pick some. He, he said Provence. Like I think you'd pick somewhere where it's like the best of both worlds, South Africa, something like that. Um, I don't think anybody would be as thrilled as I was to be in the cold northern Rhone, you know, visiting little geeky cellars where they're hand bottling three thousand, you know, bottles. Of yeah, and the Mistral's like whipping in your face, whipping yeah. in your face, and like this is awesome. I don't think that's everybody's <laughs> idea of a great of, of a great time, but it was for me, no doubt. Awesome. All right, we're going to take just a quick break. Um, Stay tuned for more of Matt Conway and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You are listening to Bang Bang Sun by Iggy Dean on Heritage Radio Network. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. For more information, visit Cane5.com. Who's in the mood for a Bloody Mary? Maybe the better question is who's not in the mood for a Bloody Mary? Support HeritageRadioNetwork.org at Lapicho on Saturday, February 9th for the second annual Eat, Drink, and Bloody Mary contest from 1 to 4 p.m. Tickets are only $60 and include a membership to HeritageRadioNetwork.org for free. That means you get to drink unlimited Bloody Marys and support your favorite food radio station. 
Taste the cocktail creations of B&B Wine Pub, Batch 22, Booker & Dax, Brooklyn Star, Clickio & Sons, DBGB, Delanima, Mile N Deli, Lartusi, Lapicha, Roberta's, Heels, Rouge Tomat, Saxon & Parole, Union Square Cafe, and The Wren. Again, that's Saturday, February 9th at Lapicho in New York City from 1 to 4 p.m. Go to eatdrinkbloodymary.eventbrite.com for tickets and more information. Uh, and we're, uh, we're back on, in the drink at heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks uh, so much, Heritage Radio Network, for playing our little Bloody Mary uh, commercial. Really appreciate it. Um, uh, you can actually get tickets at Eat, Drink, and Bloody Mary at eventbrite.com. Uh, we're here with Matt Conway, the GM, beverage director, busboy, uh, everything, uh, at at, uh, at Mark Forgioni Restaurant, uh, actually participated in uh, our Bloody Mary contest last year. Came in second. Any any hard feelings? No. <laughs> well, we deserve to win. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see you there this year, though. Correct? Yes. Uh, by the way, I love the Iggy Dean on the break there. That's my girl. You can find her at Mark Forgione five nights a week behind the bar. But one of the most talented musicians I've ever come across, and that was her on the break. Uh, back to Bloody Marys. Yes, we will be there this year, uh, hoping to gunning for the number one slot um, with our Batch Twenty Two by Mark Forgione. That's uh, what is. What's the story with Batch Twenty Two? That's an exciting project you guys have coming out. So, <clears throat> back to uh, my California days when I when I went back up to open my mother's restaurant. She, she had a brunch, and we created what we thought was the best Bloody Mary ever. So when Mark wanted to open for brunch. Um, when we opened the restaurant, you know, I put together that basic mix and, and we added a couple of very Mark Forgione signatures. One of those is, is Sriracha, um, which kind of gave it a different signature. Um, one of them is smoked sea salt that we get from our boy, uh, Lior, who hooks us up with a lot of, a lot of chefs up with, you know, signature spice blends. So we created that Bloody Mary mix with Mark's signature on it. And about two years ago, one of his best friends, was in the restaurant and he is a Bloody Mary. He's one of those people who, you know, traveled to Kansas for the, if he hears they have a great Bloody Mary and he said, you know, why don't you guys bottle this stuff? And me being the dummy that I am was like, oh yeah, that'll be easy. Um, two years later in 22 batches of test batching, you know, to hot stabilize it. So it's shelf stable. Um, we're going to about to launch batch 22, which is what we believe will be the, only, the country's only nationally distributed premium Bloody Mary mix. So what's the difference between the Bloody Mary that you're going to have when you come in for brunch at Mark Forgione? And one of my favorite brunch spots. I've been there with my with my mom, by the way. And uh, the one that you're going to get in uh, that you're going to get on this this shelf stabilized. Um, honestly, the ingredient list is the exact same. The only difference is we had to, uh, you know, you have to cook it at a certain temperature for a certain period of time. Um, so it. Obviously, when you cook tomatoes, it, it changes a little bit. So we had to work out, uh, you know, a different ratio to start. But the end product is what we're looking to be exactly the same. Starting as soon as we can, you won't be able to get our fresh version anymore because, of course, we're going to be serving batch 22 at the restaurant. Um, but the answer is nothing. They're, they're supposed to be the exact same product. Just one is capable of, you know, sustaining a year on a shelf and the other isn't. So is the idea just add vodka and ice and 
Batch 22 and you have a great home Bloody Mary? I mean, you could add any spirit you want. You know, we play around with a lot of different things that people have, have loved. But yes, you know, the traditional Bloody Mary, people would add vodka and ice. Yeah, it's it's got a lot of mustard seed, a lot of horseradish. It's very texturally thick. It's very, very strong and spicy out of out of the package without being mixed because after you add the vodka and the ice, it obviously dilutes it. So we believe it dilutes it to the perfect Bloody Mary. Um but, you know, Chef uses it as the base for his cocktail sauce, for his shrimp cocktail at a steakhouse in Atlantic City. You know, there's other stuff to be done with it. But, yeah, it's, it's add vodka, ice, and, you know, you've got a, a killer Bloody Mary. And it, you said that you're trying to experiment with some other spirits. What else are you, what else are you putting in there? Um, we've done we've done anything they can distill. We've put in there. We tend to really love mezcal, and there's a you know, smokiness would be great. Yeah, mezcal just kills it. And um, there's a white whiskey that's come out recently that's local and kind of popular. And I honestly think it kind of tastes like tequila, which is weird. The white pike. From, yes, yes. But the white pike in our Bloody Mary mix is is a delicious combination as well. That's great. We actually did a white Bloody Mary with uh, with a white pike. Which, was, which came out really great. Uh, they're they're good. They're good friends, and we we try to have some of their products. Uh, it's really cool to have. It's good stuff to have local local distillates. Um, tell us a little bit about another. As if you don't have enough going on, you you started a website called underripe.com. Yes, I did, and and you're exactly right. I probably have too much stuff, but you know the the days are long. Um, Underripecut.com is a, a website that was created in, in mind to speak to the under 30 generation. Unfortunately, I just turned 30, so I'm at the top of the millennial generation, but you know, they're turning 21 at an alarming rate, and I believe they're the true you know, future of what we do, whether it's working on the floor or in education or whatever. And, you know, I don't try to educate anybody. I just try to give a platform for somebody who's 25 to come get some information about, you know, what wines they might want to be drinking without any pretension or stuffiness. And and if you can tell by this interview, I'm not the type of person that, you know, I love wine. I love everything about it, but I don't try to force that on top of anybody, nor do I want to be stuffy about it. Like if me and you are hanging out, like wine's probably the third thing we're going to talk about after sports, girls, you know, eating out, whatever it is. But I'm you're not- like my buddy I want to grab a beer with and just hang out with. And I think that it's that, that warmth, which, uh, which is so important for, you know, to bring to the wine industry. So, yeah, I mean, Underripe is the place where hopefully you can get some information and feel comfortable about what's coming to you without feeling the need to read a book or feel like you're being educated or schooled. It's just, hey, man, you know, I like to drink this. I was um, blind tasted on a wine a couple couple days ago by a friend at a wine bar in town, and I was like, oh, it smells like Rhone. It kind of tastes like Burgundy. I know it's organic and blah, blah, blah. And they pulled off the the cover, and it's it's Carignan from, from Chile. And it's a French guy making the wine, but the wine was like, knock your socks off. And I'm like, gosh, this must be a hundred bucks a bottle, $16 a bottle. I'm spreading that on underripe.com because if you can get your hands on that $16 bottle, you are now drinking amazing wine. And it's, so it's just, you know, sharing the love of, Hey, I, I experienced this and you can too. It's $16. You can, you know, just absolutely drink some of the world's best wine um, without needing anything else except for clicking on a on a website. So, and so, do you have to be in the industry to to access it? Or no, nope. just yeah. underripe dot com. Like I said, I, I put up a bunch of you know I have it called funny shit where it's just things that I find that are interesting and funny, hilarious that have nothing to do with wine. Uh, I always have cool people on there. 
Joe's been on, um, where I just ask him a few questions. And in those questions, it's always like, you know, what are you drinking now? You know, what were you drinking when you were in your early 20s if they're not? Um, just so there's always something that a, a reader can, you know, take and, and go buy some wine and, and maybe take it another level. So what do you know now that that 30-year-old Matt would have told 21 or 24-year-old Matt? It's a great question. <clears throat> um Probably just that you know to have an open mind. If if that's all it's about, and and that's not just with wine, that's with everything in life, but particularly with wine. If um, you know, when I used to eat stuff as a kid, my mother used to say, "You can you always have to try it once. If you don't like it, then you'll never have to eat it again." But you can't say no before you try it. And ultimately, with wine, um, you know, a lot of people weren't raised with in a wine background, including myself in this country. And I think that's changing with this generation, which is why it's so important, but to have an open mind to try something you've never tried before, whether it's, you know, wine or a spirit or anything, just if you don't like the experience, it, it helps build your knowledge for the next experience. Um, but if you like, you know, Chardonnay, be open to try someone, a Chardonnay from a place that, you know, that's outside of your comfort zone and you never know where that might take you. Yeah. And that took me to uh, to America, really. I, you know, I got into uh, Italian wine and, and then old world wine, and was for a long time really close minded to domestic wines. And now I have a list that's that's half domestic, and it, I think I think you're completely right. And those, I mean, one of the greatest things about wine is is the discovery and the the joy of like learning something new and finding something new. And uh, when you have an open mind, you allow yourself to do that. Absolutely. Uh, what, let's you know because I so I really respect what what you guys do and and your tastes and I just want to know like where where would we find you on your day off where are you drinking where are you eating right now do you get a day off <laughs> I definitely get days off um, my staff would probably say maybe too many these days um, but where I always like to try. Uh, honestly, this is going to sound like a dumb plug and it's not, but the last couple of times I've been out, I've been to one of your places. I took my mom to La Piccio after it opened, uh, after the hurricane, she was staying with me and we went and had, you know, a couple great bowls of pasta. Um, and I noticed the domestic wines on the list and was, just, was kind of surprised to be honest. Um, took my, uh, old sous chef to Delanima a couple weeks ago, sat at the bar, amazing bowls of pasta. But if I'm not going to uh, staples like that, um, I'm looking for something you know new and exciting. I happen to live above Terroir, um, which is where I had that bottle of um, Chilean Carignan. Um, so I frequent places that have that give me the opportunity to taste new things. You know that's what it's all about. So if I, you know, I like to support friends too. So I like to go see what you're doing, you know, what Mike's doing uptown. I like to get around to where people that I respect uh, are doing things so that I can taste their drinks, see what they're doing, how their um, staffs look, how they handle themselves, and always trying to not only enjoy myself, but hopefully learn something new about what I can do better at, you know, Mark Ford Joan and, you know, Matthew. Yeah, I, I always find myself also, like, I'm eating out and trying to enjoy it, but I'm always, whatever, like, the current issue in the restaurant is whether it's ventilation or soundproofing I'm like trying to that I'm very, I'm ultra sensitive to that when I'm eating out when you're eating out and as someone who runs restaurants or, or as someone who runs a restaurant like what what are you looking at what is it from like a service point of view that you're like oh that's interesting how they do that or maybe it's the way they lay out the menu 
what's something that you're always extra highly sensitive to? Service. I mean, that sounds general. I, like I try, always try to just have a good time, and I find that the restaurants that I like to go to allow me to do that. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not paying attention to the little details, it, I think that means they're doing a good job. Um, but you know, a little couple weeks back, I went to market table. You know, Mikey, the chef there, is, has been a friend for a long time, and it was a cold, snowy day, and you know, came in off the streets, and they had a glass of Billy Cart cham- uh, champagne on the table, and they served us little. Beausoleil oysters that were butter poached with a, a canal of caviar before I even looked at a menu and talk about putting somebody at ease on a cold winter day. Like I just, the idea of warmth and hospitality was, was amazing. And then the server we had was just so incredible that even if the food was bad, which it was incredible, she created a situation where she put us at ease in a situation to just enjoy everything. And you know, there could have been lighting issues or ventilation issues or whatever, and I would have not known any of them because she made the experience without being, you know, too intrusive. Incredible. That's great. That's great. I love I love Mark the Table as well. Um, Matt Conway, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show, and I really also just I want to encourage everyone who's listening to go visit Matt and, and check out Mark Forjone if you can. Uh, Bring a great bottle. I'll wave the corkage. Yeah, nice. Um, And thank you so much for listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. See you soon. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.